That was very effective. Getting everybody quiet. John, uh, where's John? John. John's thinking about bringing in a bell. So now it'll just be like school. A little hear the bell and you'll, you'll get quiet. Okay, anyways, uh, here we go. At the beginning of the human story, uh, we learn of God's intention for humanity to work fruitfully six days of the week and rest obediently on the seventh. Work and rest seems simple enough. But then sin entered the picture and threw a wrench into everything. And it's interesting to consider the different ways the curse of the fall works itself out in our lives. The sentence handed down in Genesis 3 assured humanity that life east of Eden would be full of sweat, toil, dust, and pain, right? We explored that reality in our fall series in 2019 in Ecclesiastes. As such, the effects of sin have meant that every aspect of our existence, even the most fundamental aspects of our existence, you know, the basic rhythm of our calling to both work and rest, well, this has been corrupted. On the one hand, we abuse and misuse work in all sorts of ways. Uh, we try to find our identity in work. We wrongfully look to work uh, to, to get a sense of like personal value and self-worth. Uh, depending on the circumstances and your particular appetites, you may be tempted to over work. Work doesn't give us the ultimate satisfaction for which we long. It falls short. Uh, work is cursed. On the other, hand of the, uh, other end of the spectrum, we are also tempted to, to abuse and misuse our rest in all sorts of ways. We've made an entire industry out of leisure such that some of us are tempted to fill our vacations with so much stuff to do that we are more exhausted on the other side of it. Some of us get lost in social media. Hours fly by and we haven't done anything productive, just endless, mindless scrolling. Maybe we binge watch shows. We are prone to sloth. So often our rest falls short because it too is cursed. Considering the creation narrative and the seven days of the week God created for us, in terms of occupying activity, we have but two options, work and rest. Add sin to the mix and it's not surprising that we often find ourselves disquieted with dissatisfaction in work or rest or both. In our fallenness, it's natural for us to long for more, to long for more in our work, to long for more in our rest. This side of heaven, neither one of them is what it could be. In short, whether we're talking about work or rest, we are often unsettled, lacking peace, our relationship to ourselves and our work has been poisoned by sin. Deep down, we know this isn't how it's supposed to be. Deep down, we long for home. I believe our passage today scratches this unique itch. 
The main idea in view is the rest which is of God, i.e. God's rest. But I need to clarify. The rest of which the passage speaks is a deeper, more fundamental kind of dwelling. It's bigger and more encompassing than simply our vocations and vacations. It's more essential than that. It gets to the primary marker of who we are as created beings made in God's image. It speaks to our divine design and our redeemed lives in Christ Jesus. As such, the rest of which today's passage speaks is essentially the peace of being found securely in Christ. And when one is found securely in Christ, he or she is able to move out into the world with strength, resolve, clarity, and assurance. In short, when one is found securely in Christ, he or she is able to both work and rest in a way that is good and glorifying. And so we're going to spend this morning exploring this ultimate repose, uh, which is ours in Christ Jesus. To help us do that, the outline today uh, is going to essentially kind of walk us through the passage, answering some key questions along the way. Like number one, into what kind of rest have Christians been called to enter? And then secondarily, what kind of belief is required to enter such rest? And then number three, when shall we enter this rest, this Sabbath? And finally, how does one strive to enter this rest, this Sabbath, otherwise known as Jesus' yoke? So first let's consider into what kind of rest have Christians been called to enter? If you were here last week, uh, you may recall that this concept of rest was introduced in the previous chapter, three. The idea is carried through into chapter 4. The context, if you remember, is the wilderness wanderings of the people of God who had been liberated from Egypt. Uh, They had passed through the Red Sea because God had made a way for them and Moses led them successfully through it. On the other side, they faced this vast wilderness. They were journeying toward Canaan, the promised land of their reward. And over the course of their time in the wilderness, the people's faith was tested. An allusion to this is found in verses 1 and 2 of today's passage. Let's take a look. Hebrews 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In Numbers chapter 13, the Lord commanded Moses to send 12 spies uh, to the land of Canaan, one man for each of the 12 tribes. After 40 days, the spies all came back to report that the land was all that they imagined it would be. Lush and bountiful, flowing with milk and honey, the text says. Unfortunately, living in the land were a great people, large, foreboding, 
intimidating people. Ten of the twelve spies urged Moses and Aaron to turn back, fearing destruction. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were the two lone voices of dissent, arguing as follows. This is chapter 14 of Numbers. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So, in Hebrews 4 here, when the author speaks of the message being heard, but not benefiting its hearers, verse 2, he's referencing this historical event in Numbers 13 and 14. Those who listened, end of verse 2, refers to Joshua and Caleb, who, by faith, were eager to seize that which had been promised to them. Those who, quote, were not united to them by faith were the faithless Israelites who balked at the sight of the Nephilim in Canaan. You see, many of the spies exhibited faithlessness in fearing the dangers of moving forward in God's promise, trusting him to keep and protect them. As such, they failed to reach the promised land. In several different ways, that generation proved unworthy of entering his rest As he said in verse 3, quoting Psalm 95, verse 11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now you'll notice that the author of Hebrews is making a distinction between those who believe God and those who do not. Right? The beginning of verse 3 states it plainly. Quote, For we who have believed enter that rest. End quote. After which he contrasts the fate of those who didn't believe, quoting God's judgment, which we read a moment ago, referencing Psalm 95, verse 11. The author continues, uh, verse 3, by explaining that God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, which is an explicit reference to the creation narrative, which I referenced at the outset. What finished works? Well, all of them, including the seventh day of Sabbath rest. So... What we have here is the author expanding our understanding of the kind of rest Christians have been called to enter by grace through faith. If you've been around City Church for some time, you may be familiar with the concept of already not yet, this already not yet dynamic, which uh, happens a lot in Scripture in relation to the promised redemption that is ours In Christ Jesus. This side of heaven, there's this tension that we feel because, on the one hand, part of this redemption promised is realized in the here and now. We do experience salvation, we do grow and mature, we are sanctified in this sense. Redemption is already here. At the same time, we also feel the vestiges of sin. Right? The residue against which we will continually wrestle until that day when Christ calls us home permanently. And so in the meantime, we still 
struggle. We still get sick. We still grieve. We still die. In this sense, redemption is not yet, right? The fullness of it, the glory of it remains a future reality. We merely have a foretaste of that coming feast. So here, the author pivots from talking about a very specific moment in Israel's history when the people were on the verge of entering the promised land but stumbled due to unbelief. He then pivots to the creation narrative when God instituted a weekly Sabbath as a healthy rhythm of worship and replenishment amidst six days of week. So, what we have here is Hebrews doing what Hebrews does. It takes a two-dimensional theological concept and, and gives it three dimensions. It takes an Old Testament idea and reveals the depth of its New Testament fulfillment. It deepens and broadens our horizons in order that we might see the fuller picture. The heavenly rest into which Christians have been called isn't first and foremost a day of the week any more than it's a particularly fruitful piece of land in the ancient Near East, right? I'll say that again. The heavenly rest into which Christians have been called isn't first and foremost a day of the week or uh, a particularly fruitful piece of land in the ancient Near East. No, the, the rest is right relationship with God, which is ultimately what the Sabbath represents by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What did Christ say in the Gospel of Matthew, which we read as our assurance of pardon a little bit earlier this morning in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." You're likely familiar with the imagery here. A picture two oxen joined together by this apparatus called a yoke, such that when one pulls, well, the other one can't help but also pull. Ideally, the beasts share the burden equally. But when we are joined with Christ, the yoke is naturally easy and the burden light. It's not laborious. Now, to be sure, there is work to be done. Okay? Work existed before the fall. But in Christ, this side of heaven, the, the stinging sweat, the strenuous toil, the choking dust, and the biting pain are lessened and mitigated by the dignifying restorative security that is, that is ours in Jesus' Sabbath of salvation. And so, and so the next question which arises then brings us to our second point. Okay, what kind of belief is required to enter such a rest? And it is here where we begin to make some important clarifications, like distinguishing between the mere acceptance of an idea and the deeply held conviction that it can be trusted. The difference between the mere acceptance of an idea and the deeply held conviction that it can be trusted. A baseline belief in God's existence 
and heartfelt trust in the gospel, those are two different things. If you're familiar with the gospels, you know this to be true. There were plenty of instances in which it was demonstrated that demons remain in subjection to Jesus even when they refused to bow a knee, as it were, right? They believed, they just didn't trust. This is what prompted the brother of Jesus to write in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And we see this in Numbers 13 and 14. Surely, think about this, surely all 12 spies sent by Moses and Aaron believed in God, right? They had experienced the plagues. Uh, They walked through the Red Sea with everyone else. They saw the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Surely they believed, but only two of them trusted. And of the thousands of Israelites on whose behalf those spies were sent, surely the majority of them believed for all the same reasons I just listed. All of them likely believed. But how many of them actually trusted in faith? After all, what is it that compelled God to prohibit them from entering his rest, if not unbelief, which in the ultimate sense indicted their deepest trust and convictions, or lack thereof, more accurately. Pastor and theologian R. Kent Hughes explains, belief, the mental acceptance of a fact is true, will simply not bring rest to any soul. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world will not give us rest. Trust in Him is what gives rest to our souls. I'm going to read that again. Belief, the mental acceptance of a fact is true, will simply not bring rest to any soul. Acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world will not give us rest. Trust in Him is what gives rest to our souls. A bit more poetically, Scottish minister Alexander McLaren put it this way, Trust brings rest because it sweeps away. As the north wind does the banded clouds on the horizon, all the deepest causes of unrest. And so then, the basic rule is true. The more trust you have, the more rest you'll enjoy. The more you trust Jesus, the more of his rest you'll know and experience. At the beginning, trust in Christ's sacrificial death brings us an initial rest from the burden of guilt for our sins and for our battered conscience. But then as we grow in Christ, hopefully our trust expands and and begins to encompass not simply ultimate concerns like judgment and eternity, but more practical day-to-day matters which require from us a different kind of trust, right? Not simply a trust in the saving power of a sacrificial Savior eternally, but trust in the sweet character of our loving sovereign day by day. Those are two different things, you see. Being a foster family to Brax. 
has been a sweet uh, experience on a variety of levels. Uh, circumstantially, we represent a, a kind of salvation for him, little s, obviously. Uh, by God's grace, we are able to provide for his basic needs of survival, right? Sustenance and safety, a warm bed, clothes to wear, etc. But even as we are honored to provide for him in these basic but essential ways, we are growing in our relationship with him such that his emotional and psychological needs are being met increasingly as well. When he's distressed, uh, sometimes all that is necessary is the warm embrace of his foster parents or sibling and Brax calms right down because in his own little way, he trusts in the good intentions and loving character of his caretakers. He feels safe and secure resting in our arms. It's the same with us and our Heavenly Father. Initially, we trust Christ for our essential spiritual needs, salvation, right? We need a righteous advocate to defend us before our holy judge, and Jesus does that perfectly. But as our faith grows, ideally, so does our trust in Jesus. We don't believe that he's simply the Savior of our souls, Hopefully, more and more, we trust that he's also the Lord of our everyday lives. And so, to answer our second question here, the kind of belief that is required to enter the already not yet rest spoken of in Hebrews 4 is the kind of faith and trust that Joshua and Caleb exhibited on the cusp of Canaan. Recall how they put it in Numbers 14. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Uh, they are bread for us. I love that. This echoes what we looked at this past Advent in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Joshua and Caleb are saying. If the Lord delights in us, well then do not... Check, check. All right. Oh, yeah. Joshua and Caleb. If the Lord delights in us, then why would we fear them? Here's the question, then. 
Do you approach life with that kind of confidence? Do you move out into the world each day in the strength and confidence that, that springs forth from trusting in Jesus in every way? You see, in the gospel, there's a kind of rest. There's a kind of deep and abiding peace which enters both our work and our leisure. And this is how Christians can both meaningfully disengage from work and truly rest, unburdened by the cares of the world, whether on the evenings, you know, on a weekday, or on the Sabbath itself. Only if we're resting in Jesus can we ever hope to truly rest in general. Let me say that again. Only if we're truly resting in Jesus can we ever hope to actually rest in general. And this then gets to another question, which brings us to our third point this morning. When shall we enter this rest, this Sabbath? Well, let's jump back into the text, verses 6 through 10. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so this further underscores this already not yet dynamic of which I spoke earlier. The rest that is ours in Christ Jesus is not merely a future reality. I mean, it is in the ultimate sense, but it's also a very present reality. But it's the future certainty of Sabbath, capital S, which enables our present resting. You see, under Joshua's leadership, eventually, the next generation of people did enter the promised land of Canaan. And yet, the very real rest of inhabiting the land was only a foretaste of that glorious future rest, which is ours in Christ Jesus. That's why the author says what he says there in verse 8. I'll paraphrase it uh, differently. If the rest into which Joshua led, uh, led those people was the ultimate rest of which God spoke at the beginning of all things in Genesis 1 and 2, well, then that would have been that. Uh, there would not have been any additional talk of rest to come since that rest would have been realized in Canaan. But you see, the Canaanites' rest was only a foretaste. Just like marriage isn't the ultimate relationship, but merely a foretaste of a better one to come. Just like the church isn't the ultimate community, but at its best, merely a foretaste of a better one to come. The best worship you've ever experienced, the greatest sermon to which you've ever listened, these are merely foretastes of that heavenly doxology that will be ours one day when Christ returns to make all things new. If you have an ESV study Bible, I found the, the margin notes helpful at this point. 
It explains it this way. Therefore, the Sabbath rest remains possible for God's people to enter even now in this life, verse 9. The promise of entering now into this rest means ceasing from the spiritual strivings that reflect uncertainty about one's final destiny. It means enjoyment of being established in the presence of God to share in the everlasting joy that God entered when he rested on the seventh day, verse 10. As such, the answer to the question, when shall we enter this rest, is today. The offer and opportunity remain fresh. Lamentations 3.23, his mercies are new every morning. Even as we remember that the dual nature of the rest on offer, i.e. both already and not yet, even so, we can enter into that rest today. And so the difficult things we face in life, in Christ, they aren't as difficult as they otherwise would be. We can bear up under them simply because we are not alone. Jesus is with us. What is more, he has given us his body, which is the church. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Parenting can be hard. But in Christ, there can be a kind of rest in parenting. There can be gentleness and joy. Marriage can be hard. But in Christ, there can be rest in the midst of that difficulty. There can be peace and faithfulness. Church life can be hard, but in Christ, there can be rest in and amidst that difficulty. There can be patience and love. Work can certainly be hard, but in Christ, there can be rest in the midst of that difficulty. There can be goodness and, and self-control. I could go on, and perhaps you're hearing what I'm doing there. Uh, each of the benefits to which I referred are fruit of the Spirit. Recall uh, Paul's description in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this list is not exhaustive. Against such things there is no law. And this kind of dawned on me this week, but if you think about it, the fruit of the Spirit, in a way, is an advance on our future rest, right? Like the fruit of the Spirit is the most already thing about our not yet. It's the most already thing about our current lives in Christ. And yet the analogy quickly breaks down because the advance we receive in the fruit of the Spirit isn't then deducted from what's to come, right? Imagine maybe like your folks give you a few thousand dollars to put toward a down payment on a house with the understanding that, you know, when they die and their, whatever their inheritance is, is divided between you and your siblings, for example, well, whatever you get will be less what they gave you as an advance for the down payment today, right? Well, that's not how the gospel works. The Lord gives us an advance in the form of the fruit of the spirit, but nothing is deducted on the other end. We simply get more more than we can imagine. The beauty and virtue of the Spirit's renewing presence in our lives will simply come to even greater fruition. And when in this life, by grace through faith, we live in the fruit of the Spirit as we walk 
as it were, in the spiritual land of Canaan, well, then we know and experience a piece of that true rest, despite the circumstances. The, the full rest is yet to come, but true rest can be had here and now, today. And finally, this leads us to the fourth and final question which arises from today's text. How does one strive to enter this rest, this Sabbath, otherwise known as Jesus' yoke? And that's interesting language, isn't it? Consider how the author puts it in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Lots could be said here in these remaining verses, but I'll just highlight two ideas. And the first is this idea that Christians are to strive to enter God's rest. Something about that is a little counterintuitive, right? Kind of like, savor your emos. Enjoy your run. Not possible, right? These things don't go together. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the author of Hebrews urges. And some translations render, let us strive as do our utmost, or give diligence, or make every effort, or even let us labor to enter the rest. And part of what this striving involves is the possession of a particular mindset that should characterize every Christian. Namely, that as God's creatures in God's world, people who have been made in his image and have been imbued with divine purpose, we are to approach every day, in fact, every moment with intentionality. And in very real sense, every moment is holy, since every moment is an opportunity to either live for Christ or live for ourselves. And so part of what it looks like to strive to enter God's rest is living with righteous intentionality and gospel purpose all the time, as much as it is humanly possible. Every interaction, every opportunity is, in fact, divinely appointed an occasion to participate personally in the coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we participate as ambassadors, as the kingdom manifests, bit by bit, we enter into God's rest a little bit more. But part of what this intentionality and participation require is that crucial combination of belief plus trust. Not just belief, for even the demons believe. No, it's belief plus trust. Do you trust that God is for you? Do you trust that God knows what's best for you at all times? Do you trust that his will is perfectly good, even in the midst of hard things, difficult things, sad things? think book of Job. Do you trust that the only true rest you will ever find for your restless heart is in Jesus?
The second idea I'd like to highlight is this interesting turn the author of Hebrews makes toward the nature of Scripture in verses 12 and 13. And to, to be sure, this is an extended warning passage. The author is warning us against the trap of unbelief uh, that we might not slip into disobedience and rebellion like our forebears in the wilderness. And as I mentioned last Sunday, it could be argued that the author's original audience here, likely Jewish Christians somewhere in Italy, it's likely that, they, that their context could be considered a kind of wilderness. And the same could be said of the modern church. We are wandering, as it were, in the wilderness because we have not yet entered our ultimate rest. The land flowing with milk and honey is uh, in the great beyond, as it were. And so there's, there's a warning here in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He then goes on in verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Immediately on the heels of the author's charge about striving to enter God's rest, and he goes into this beautiful, illustrative description of the word of God. God's word is alive and operational. The Bible, he says, is like a special sword that, that slices and dices at the spiritual level of our existence. Not only that, but apparently, in a way, Scripture knows what we're thinking and feeling. End of verse 12. And there's no hiding from it. There's no hiding from him. Before the pages of Scripture, before the eyes of the Lord, the human heart is laid bare, verse 13. In one way or another, we will all have to give an account before the truth, before the judge, whether we've embraced his word humbly by faith or rejected it foolishly out of sinful hubris. But for those who understand and acknowledge what the word is, well, for them, it is by its very nature a source of rest and peace and sanity and nourishment. And that's what the word is for those who believe it and trust it. And once again, I feel like I've done something wrong saying so very little on such a momentous passage, but I went long last Sunday and I vowed not to do that two weeks in a row. I guess this is what preaching through Hebrews is like. One final thought. In Matthew 11, uh, the passage I referenced earlier, Jesus spoke of my yoke and my burden, right? And here in Hebrews 4, God speaks of my rest, quoting Psalm 95. I think that's interesting. I started this morning reflecting upon the various ways that we, in our sinful flesh, are tempted to abuse and misuse both our work and our rest. But in the gospel, our work becomes his work, right? My yoke, my burden. What is more, our rest becomes his rest. This is kind of remarkable. 
And what this tells us is that God's redemptive will for his people is completely thorough. There's no such thing as a sacred secular divide. As Abraham Kuyper once famously wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so, Christ dignifies our work and he decorates our rest. He redeems and restores all of it. And so whether we're talking about our vocations or vacations, Christians are meant to do life differently. The restlessness that so often typifies the workplace, the frenetic impulse to, to indulge every possible activity and experience in our leisure. In Christ, these fade away. Because we know that our deepest satisfaction is not ultimately found in this life or in the things of this world. And trusting that is what enables us to truly rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this word. Hebrews is so packed. Jesus, with such depth and layers of richness and meaning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, just pound it into our, our thick skulls and our dull hearts. Make our hearts supple. Make our, our minds receptive uh, to the beauty of this truth. I pray that you would enliven our hearts, awaken our minds, that we would walk out of here changed people. Uh, truly, we pray that regularly, Lord, and we pray it with expectation that you would be doing a work in us now that we would be tasting and experiencing a measure of rest in Christ today. That we would leave here feeling more confident in who we are in Christ and what he is doing in our lives. We pray that now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.